America's Constitution. We're sponsored once again by Everscholar. We're now living in the uh, glow of the publication of uh, Keel's new book, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. So we thought we would uh, devote some episodes to constitutional provisions and considerations that enable that conversation, and indeed, uh, that enable this book that discusses them. The uh, First Amendment and the American values and culture of free speech, the privilege and immunity of speech, if you will, in constitutional language, are, are our topic then. And we're so fortunate to have guests for these podcasts who are the unquestioned experts on these matters, and we're starting today with Nadine Strassen. So a word about Professor Strassen. She's the John Marshall Harlan II Professor of Law at New York Law School. Um, she received her Bachelor of Arts degree from Harvard College in 1972, Phi Beta Kappa, her JD from Harvard Law School in 1975, magna cum laude, and she was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. She became professor of law at New York Law School in 1988. She's probably best known for her tenure from 1991 to 2008, 17 years, that is, as president of the American Civil Liberties Union. She was the first woman to head uh, this, uh, the nation's largest and oldest civil liberties organization. And she remains a member of innumerable boards, including the ACLU's National Advisory Council and many others. Um, when she stepped down as ACLU president in 2008, Three Supreme Court justices participated in her in her farewell and tribute: uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Anthony Scalia, and David Souter. She's the author of two books. One is on hate, and one is on pornography, both in the context of free speech, of course. The uh, National Law Journal named Professor Strassen one of America's 100 most influential lawyers, and several other publications have named her as one of the country's most influential women. At the uh, law school's 2019 commencement, she had the unique distinction of winning both the award for outstanding teaching as well as the award for the best book. Um, in addition to her many public presentations before diverse audiences, which we will talk about, uh, in 2001, she made her professional theater debut as the guest star in the award-winning play, The Vagina Monologues, during a uh, run at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. In 1986, she became one of the first three women to receive the 10 Outstanding Young Americans Award, and she was the first woman to win the uh, 10 Outstanding Young Persons of the World Award. She's received honorary Doctor of Law degrees from many universities and innumerable other honors. So please welcome to America's Constitution, Professor Nadine Strassen. Welcome, welcome, Nadine. Hey. I'm delighted to be here, Andy. Thank you for having me. Hey, Nadine. Listen, um, you and I uh, go way back. We're old friends. And um, I, in preparation for um, our event, I was poking around uh, on the Internet, and I, th I found a clip. I think it's actually the first time that we met. Um, uh, and so I'm going to play this and see if you can... Um, r remember it and remember even the voice. Um, I'll give you a hint. The date is um, February 7, 1993. So let's see if wow. you... And, and, and you're being introduced by someone. Let's see if you, um, if you can uh, remember it. Okay, so I'm going to put the microphone over by my computer and let's see if this works. 
Uh, number four in the, in the lineup is Professor uh, Nadine Strawson, uh, now of the uh, New, York, uh, uh, New York Law School. Um, I think most of you, in fact, are more likely to know her as the current president of the American Civil Liberties Union, where she was the, uh, uh, where she was, in fact, the, the general counsel. I think for what about four years before you became before you became president. Uh, she is a graduate. I never know how to say it anymore. Harvard or Radcliffe, you can take your pick, uh, and Harvard Law School after that. Uh, she too went through a clerkship uh, for the, in the university at the Supreme Court of Minnesota uh, before coming back in, in, uh, in an easterly direction to teach. Uh, so Nadine, do you, do you remember that voice? I do. You just brought me chills, Akil. David Souter. And of course, you know, the habit yeah. with his classic New England accent. Uh, and that was such a memorable event. He, of course, was had been newly appointed to the court. He was he was introduced by uh, Stephen Breyer, who was then still on the First Circuit Court of Appeals, had not yet ascended to the Supreme Court. And you had clerked for Justice Breyer, I remember that. It was a panel uh, that took place in that historic Faneuil Hall, just beautiful setting, and we were talking about f the Fourth Amendment and, and, and privacy rights. Um, exactly, and Nadine, um, one of the things that I want our audience to know is just how many of these events you do. So it's amazing that you have that recall of, of that event. I, I remember once you were telling me, um, like in a given, in an average year, how many uh, events um, uh, you used to do. Maybe you still do. So maybe you can tell uh, our audience just a little bit about, uh, about your life as a, as a, as a pub public speaker. I recently had somebody asked me exactly how many talks I had given in the past couple of years. So I actually added up. You know, I keep a, a running tally. And last year it was low because uh, there was a period after in-person events got canceled before the online events started ganging up. So I only did 108 last year. Uh, the year before, it was more than 150, and uh, you are number 55 so far this year. <laughs> well, you need to correct your Wikipedia page then, because it says that you've done a total of 200 and, and, appearances. Right, and I told Andy that's <laughs> an average of 200 a year over many, many years, probably. So, and that might yes. be low. And, and of course, uh, you know, as our audience no doubt knows, um, many of these stem from your, your long tenure uh, as the as the head of the ACLU, this is a constitutional podcast, and certainly, um, it's hard to imagine a, a, an organization and, and a career more wrapped up in in the Constitution than than yours and the ACLU's. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about your you know your life story, like how you came to this uh, work, uh, and in particular, the the history of your family? Sure, I am so continue to be so inspired by the 
generosity and commitment of my parents in making sure that my brother and I would have educational and professional opportunities that were denied to them. Uh, in fact, basic human rights were denied to them by virtue of who they, they were. Uh, my father very dramatically was born in Germany in 1922. He was just defined under the pernicious Nuremberg racist laws as what was called a Jew of the second degree, whose mother was Jewish, but not his father. Uh, for that reason, as well as the fact that he was active uh, politically against Hitler, even as a teenager, which makes me very proud of him, for those two reasons, he was thrown into the Buchenwald forced labor camp when he went in, he was still young enough and healthy enough that they did not slate him for death right away. Uh, but they had a slogan of literally trying to work people to death. So it was not only death by gas chambers. Uh, I forgive my horrible German accent. My father never wanted me to learn German for understandable reasons. But the slogan was, Zerstörung durch Arbeit, destruction through work, and indeed, because of starvation conditions and rampant disease, uh, he literally almost died. And 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 even beyond that, if all of that's not bad enough, in addition to the genocide, the Nazis had a eugenocide program to kill off uh, undesirable genes, my father being doubly undesirable as a political opponent and a half-Jew, uh, had an, a specific appointment to be sterilized. And, and one day before that appointment, the Buchenwald forced labor camp was liberated by members of the U.S. military. My mother's story is not quite that dramatic, but still, you know, from my perspective, uh, she suffered such de deprivation and discrimination. She was the daughter of immigrants to the United States, one from uh, Italy, one from what is now Croatia, and they had very traditional attitudes about what a woman's role in life should be. Uh, my grandfather in particular was very strict, and my mother idolized him. Uh, so when he told her she, you know, girls do not need to be educated and should not be educated and should get married and support their, their husbands and children full time, she did that. But she was very frustrated and, and raised me uh, to, A, have every educational opportunity, but B, never, ever, ever take it for granted. So I'm very happy. I've endowed a scholarship at New York Law School, which opens a lot of doors. It's the kind of school that uh, has a lot of first-generation Americans in its ranks and a lot of first-generation even to have gone to college, let alone law school. So I think it's a particularly suitable um, beneficiary uh, of scholarship money named after my, my, my dear parents. Uh, wow, Nadine, um, so interesting because I—I mean, you, you know, we're friends, but we haven't talked about this before. You've you've, you've had me over, um, you and Ellie, um, for, for for dinner. You know, was, um, but we've never talked about this. But um, I uh, set up a scholarship fund at, at my at, 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 at my school in honor of my immigrant parents. So, oh, um, wonderful! Um, and um, um, although it wasn't book involved, my. Um, uh, um, mother's brother, my uncle, who came to the U.S. to uh, as a young 
uh, lad to, to study at University of California, Berkeley, ended up, um, a World War II breaks out. He enlists in the U.S. Army, even though he's an Indian who had been raised in, in Africa. He joins Patton's army, and uh, they, uh, he was at the Battle of the Bulge, but, and, and he was involved in the liberation of, of some. Oh. Um, uh, in, uh, so, how, like, only in America story, in, oh, in, a, in, in a way. Happen. Only in America could this happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, very touching. In, in, uh, in my case, my, my wife's uh, family history is interesting in, in that um, uh, they, they uh, em- emigrated from Russia, and they had an extensive family, very interesting family, lots of Nobel Prize winners and interesting people. But, um, the, and they would have these reunions, and eventually uh, they commissioned someone to do a genealogy and a family tree, and they had an artistic rendition of the family tree made, and you can see the branches falling off the tree uh, oh, wow. during the Holocaust. <laughs> and uh, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I was laughing because I was anticipating something happy. That's my nature. I'm well, so sorry about no, that. No, no, that's fine. I didn't think you were laughing at the branches falling. But at, at any rate, um, the uh, you can actually see this rendition in the Museum of Jewish Heritage now. They donated it there. Oh. So but at any rate... And I understand that your your mother's father. May I say had a, something? May I say something sure. cheerful? Um, my rabbi friend recently said that they, with all of the intermarriage and a lot of traditional Jews are complaining, you know, duty. And he said, you know, we're not being killed by violence now; we're being killed by love. <laughs> I thought that was really cute. Yeah. Well, well. Andy, you can tell him what your rabbi says about about this, and and then and the great uh, mitzvah, the joy in in, in your family recently. Yes, well, my rabbi says that a good Jew is someone that has Jewish grandchildren, and, <laughs> which uh, I'm, I'm very happy to now, claim, now lay claim to. Mazel so, so I also understand that your mother's father also had an interesting uh, history that, that probably is relevant to the question of civil liberties. Yes, I, I've already mentioned him, a complicated person, because as I told you, he had some extremely traditional attitudes about mm-hmm women and family, but he was a, a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist and, um, and, and you know, deeply supportive of uh, the Soviet Revolution and um, deeply antipathetic to capitalism in the United States and especially United States foreign policy during World War One. He could have been one of the ACLU's clients in cases like, um, well, the ACLU itself didn't exist, but the forerunner of the ACLU in the famous Supreme Court cases in 1919, Abrams and Sheikh and all of the, you know, anti-war, um, pro-Soviet revolution dissidents. And my grandfather was, his case didn't go to the Supreme Court, uh, but he, for peacefully protesting the war, he did receive a sentence uh, who knows what the what the crime was? This was in Hudson County, New Jersey, and his penalty was he was made to stand outside the courthouse facing the outer wall, spread eagles with his hands and feet against the wall, so that passersby could spit on him. That's you know horrifying. If uh, if that kind of thing took place today, I assume the ACLU would take the case. What would the uh, what would the argument be? 
we've had unfortunately too many similar cases uh, and 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 with many many going on right now of peace people who are seeking to exercise their first amendment right not only to freedom of speech but also to peaceful assembly to the right of the people to peaceably assemble and yet we've had so many incidents in city after city of law enforcement officers uh, arresting and in some cases assaulting and uh, and 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 mistreating peaceful protesters uh, including journalists who are trying to document the peaceful protests including legal observers from organizations such as the ACLU and the National Lawyers Guild who are trying to protect the legal rights of these individuals and uh, it's who often law enforcement has responded with unwarranted force uh, and unwarranted arrests and detentions. The good news is that the First Amendment legal principles that uh, provide protection for those demonstrators and against the police violation of their rights, those legal principles are now uh, deeply entrenched. And to the very best of my knowledge, we win. We have won every single one of these cases. That's the good news, Andy. But the bad news is that neither the First Amendment itself nor all of the many precedents enforcing it are self-enforcing. And uh, those legal principles are honored in the breach every day, which is why the work of the ACLU and similar organizations and individual lawyers will never end. We have to translate the legal guarantees that exist as a matter of theory into actual rights for real people on the ground all over the country every day. Uh, Speaking of which, there's a major case that we're arguing in the Supreme Court today, perhaps at this very, very hour, uh, on a subject that I know, Akil, it's one of the other things that you and I have in common. One of the many other times that we've spoken together was at a historic conference at, at Drake Law School about Tinker versus Des Moines. And you were a high school journalist, as I recall, um, that be- made you first aware of the ACLU and concerned about civil liberties and First Amendment rights. My high school teacher, um, English, I, I, I wrote for the student newspaper. I wrote anti-Nixon um, spoofs and satires and, and op-eds. And the principal didn't seem to share my sense of humor. Um, so he um, censored the uh, essays and we uh, ran just a big blank space um, where the essay was supposed to go. And my journalism advisor supported me, um, Ruth Ann White, and my uh, English teacher supported me, uh, Mr. Hand, uh, J- James Hand. And he gave me a book. I still have it today. Um, uh, it's it's right downstairs. Uh, um, one of my best thumbed uh, books in in my library um, by the ACLU, "The Rights of Students." It's a little um, 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 a scarlet um, handbook, um, and that's where I learned about Tinker versus Des Moines, in which students uh, claiming First Amendment rights actually prevailed against a thin-skinned principle and and Nadine you're absolutely right now in um, a recent book we uh, we you're part of an amazing tradition truthfully um as uh, uh, in uh, being interviewed for this podcast uh, our last interview was with the great Bob Woodward um, and um, I dedicated my last book 
um, uh, to Bob. I have one coming out soon, but um, oh, um, um, but uh, the last one um, is dedicated to Bob Woodward because um, his example of um, uh, journalistic courage in- inspired me as a um, as a high schooler, and um, and then I later followed up with a, an essay that they didn't. Um, uh, uh, censor about how the school was spending a lot more money on boys' sports than girls' sports. So this was sort of an, an, an expose. And in retrospect, I think that's what, you know, I, I wasn't lucky enough to go to Harvard or Radcliffe or David Sudowski Harvard or Radcliffe, but, but um, I, I, um, I, what got me into Yale, I think, was this journalistic um, experience. Mm-hmm. And that's when I learned about the ACLU and that's when I think I decided I was, you know, or I, that, that I really not only wanted to, to do law, but maybe constitutional law. And I want to tell our audience one more thing about that, which is really maybe the next time you and I got together. The first time was um, at Faneuil Hall. And the next time was on the 30th anniversary of Tinker versus Des Moines. Um, so that would have been um, uh, 1999. Um, uh, the earlier one was, I think, 1993. I think we had some others in between. Oh, okay. you know, I'm remembering one at Harvard Law School on privacy and free speech, but and and I'm sure there were others. Okay. But yes. Okay, I but but we were at, and, and and I had just become a parent, and I was telling you all. I think I may have shown you a picture of uh, our little boy, mm-hmm. and you, you're such a sweetie. You actually um uh, uh, got my address, and and you sent a little T-shirt um for this little boy. It was an AC. CLU t-shirts, I heart liberty, and, and we have pictures of Vic, you know, age six months, wearing his ACLU t-shirt from his, his Aunt Nadine, um, and, 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 and thank you for that. We still remember that in our household. Well, thank you for letting him exercise his freedom to wear the t-shirt. I, I gave a t-shirt when Justice Thomas was speaking at New York Law School many years ago at my invitation. He was then raising his grandnephew, and, or his nephew. I can't remember exactly what the relationship was, and who was then, I think, a teenager and or maybe, you know, an adolescent in any event. And I gave Thomas as a present for uh, this nephew a t- an ACLU T-shirt that said, you're never too young to exercise your rights. And Thomas looked at it and he laughed and in good humor, but he was quite serious. He said, I'm not going to let him wear that. Oh my goodness! Now, now tell us. And we know Thomas's views on these student free speech issues, right? Well, tell us Which about the basic. case. Tell us about the well, case today. Oh, the case today, which has been getting a tremendous amount of publicity, uh, involves a cheerleader from a public school in Pennsylvania who went into an online rant using the F word many times when she was denied a position on her varsity, her school's varsity cheerleading team, which she thought that she deserved. And she used one of these social media apps, forgive me, I'm not a parent of a teenager, so I don't remember the name of it, but one uh, that you only send to your friends and it disappears. Uh, It's Snapchat, I think. Yes, exactly, exactly. After a quite short period of time, like 24 hours, something like that. But one of the friends um, uh, took a screenshot of it, and that friend showed it to her mother, who was some kind of cheerleading coach at the school. And the student was our client. Uh, she's, this is an ACLU case. Um, our client, Brittany. 
I think her name is Brittany Levy, was suspended uh, from school. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, the ACLU, since the advent of social media, has constantly defended the rights of school kids to engage in expression um, on their own media devices, their own technology, their own computers, uh, away from school, outside of school time, and in the face of schools um, expanding jurisdiction. Uh, Schools purport to have the power to punish students for anything that they consider might have a disruptive impact on the school. In other words, and they have been defining that very broadly as anything that is either uh, a message about the school and or is of interest and concern to uh, people who are part of the school community. And what they are playing upon is the standard that the court laid down in the historic Tinker case that uh, when it famously said expressly for the first time that freedom of speech and expression does not end at the schoolhouse gate. And by the way, it's a ruling that extends to teachers as well. Neither teachers nor students shed their constitutional rights to free speech at the schoolhouse gate. Uh, The only circumstance in which the school may punish the speech is if the speech causes a material and substantial disruption of the educational process or interferes with the rights of others. And uh, despite really strong basis for concern in the Tinker case itself, uh, that there could be material and substantial disruption from Mary Beth Tinker and the other students wearing black armbands to protest the Vietnam War, uh, the school said that, you know, the speculation that that might lead to violence, that it might lead to traumatize certain students who had fathers, brothers, other relatives fighting and dying in Vietnam, uh, that was not enough to satisfy the standard. So it was a standard that had a lot of teeth in it. And if you'll permit me, uh, Andy and Alan, I always, and, and Keel, I always tell my students today, uh, I, I have to give them the historic context so they can understand how controversial the speech was at the time, mm-hmm. right? Because today people think, well, the Vietnam War was unpopular. What's the big deal? But having grown up in Minnesota at exactly that time, I can attest and the war was very popular in the early 60s when these events took place, uh, especially in that part of the country. Iowa to this day continues to be quite a conservative state. Uh, so it was a very controversial pos- position to be opposing the war in Vietnam at that time in that place. And also many members of the school community had loved ones who were fighting in Vietnam, who had lost their lives in Vietnam. So it was deeply emotionally and psychologically upsetting to many of the students. And I have to emphasize that because if we are to understand the full force of the Supreme Court's holding and saying that's not a material and substantial disruption, we have to, to understand what that means today. We have to consider what would be similarly controversial views today. What would be similarly upsetting and psychologically traumatizing expression today? It might be something about Black Lives Matter, for example. Uh, But the U.S. Supreme Court never gave any further definition 
of that standard, and the lower courts have severely watered it down so that the exception for materially and substantially disrupting speech really has swallowed the rule. It's basically anything that the student says anytime that might cause uh, a disruptive impact. Uh, interestingly enough, the uh, Third Circuit Court of Appeals in that case, which has been very speech uh, protective, issued a categorical rule that nothing that a student says uh, that online that is apart from the school, you know, not during school time, not on school premises, does not bear the imprimatur of the school, that that is categorically beyond the school's punitive powers. I'm not too optimistic that the Supreme Court will uphold that categorical rule, but I hope they will at least make clear that this speech did not satisfy what I think Tinker intended as a very, very strict concept of material and, dis and substantial disruption. You know, I think that you, you identify so many um, important issues there, and, and some of this, I think there's a tension between the this First Amendment notion of protecting that the, the in, in a sense the more hateful speech the more it needs to be protected, and the notion of disruption uh, in in the school so that people are disrupted be, when they're upset or when they react you know emotionally but that of course the, that's the very speech speech that's protected by the First Amendment the more well this of course has been a major controversy not only in secondary schools, but even on college and university campuses, law schools, professional schools, where students complain that they should not be um, subject to, and subject to is even too strong a word, they should not have to know that somebody on their campus is saying something offensive that they might find deeply traumatizing. And I, I say that, I don't intend to sound disrespectful of students. I, I, my heart goes out to them. My mind goes out to them. Uh, I want them to feel included and embraced and welcomed and empowered and encouraged. I want everything affirmative for them. Uh, but my belief, and I'm saying this as an educator, I'm not even saying this as a civil libertarian, specifically in my capacity as an educator with responsibility for the professional training of another generation of professionals who are going to continue to translate the constitutional guarantees into actual rights for actual people. They have to be resilient. They have to have the self-confidence. They have to have the other tools that we can instill in them through a rigorous educational process to answer back and fight back and stand up against speech that other people are trying to use to denigrate them. And again, I really have to emphasize, I don't want this to come across as sounding like I'm, I'm blaming the victim, not at all. It's not the responsibility of somebody who's subject to um, harassing or disparaging terms to, to respond to it. But I do think it is our responsibility as educators to do everything we possibly can to make them want to seize that opportunity and see it as an opportunity uh, for their own, to enhance their own dignity and their own agency and not not empower somebody who's a hate monger to uh, to have any adverse impact on them 
Well, since you're talking about the word hate, um, and you're, you're saying what you just said as an educator, you also do believe these very same things um, as, a, as a lawyer and a constitutional lawyer. So I just wanted to invite you to tell our audience a little bit about a book that you wrote all about this. And I think actually another th- a thing that you and I um, have, have done together was actually a conversation about your book at the New York Historical Society, I think, or, or somewhere in New York. I think it was... Yes, um, thank you so much for doing that again. That was a really wonderful event. Uh, also with Amy Adler from, from NYU Law School. So uh, unlike Akil, who just oozes amazing books. Uh, I'm not a book writer. And as you have already discerned through your questioning, my preferred medium is speaking. I spend the vast majority of my time doing that. Fortunately, a lot of the talks now live in perpetuity thanks to the internet. That's a nice change. But uh, other than that, they've mostly been ephemeral. And, And I've only twice in my life felt motivated. I write a lot of, you know, law review articles and charter pieces, but I've only twice felt really strongly compelled to write a book. And uh, the the more recent of those occasions was a few years ago in the aftermath of uh, the Michael Brown killing in Missouri, which led to uh, its sparked student protests around the country and uh, a regalvanizing of of student activism, the likes of which we had not seen since I was a student in the dark ages, uh, the late 1960s and early 1970s. And, you know, in support of causes to which I could not be more committed, Black Lives Matter and social justice and racial justice and against police abuse. Uh, but it became quite clear quite early that uh, these students were very suspicious of free speech, very hostile toward it, and, and, and were seeing freedom of speech as their enemy, the enemy of their progressive and human rights causes. And for I have always seen freedom of speech that's robust enough to extend even to hateful and racist speech as being an essential engine for all other human rights causes, including racial justice and gender justice. I had been trying to make that case through our view articles and speaking, um, but clearly I had not been persuasive enough, nor had others who had taken the same position. So I really accepted this as, as a challenge, as an opportunity to try to make precisely that case more effectively. I all, it was also a challenge to myself because I, I, I do try my very best within human limitations to be open-minded, to reconsider ideas based on new evidence, based on new perspectives. And so, you know, it had been a while since I had looked into the actual track record of anti-hate speech laws in other countries. Uh, A lot of evidence had accumulated because other countries, uh, by and large, do have these laws. And what I found was that uh, the evidence continued to demonstrate that no matter how well intended these laws were, that they actually ended up doing. Uh, At best, they were ineffective, and at worst, they were counterproductive. In terms of the goals that I completely share with the proponents of the anti-hate speech laws, uh, equality, dignity, inclusivity, diversity, societal harmony, 
And uh, I end up in my book quoting many human rights activists, minority group rights activists from countries around the world, from international human rights agencies, uh, who echo that concern uh, that, that, that these laws, no matter how well intended, inevitably end up doing more harm than good, uh, given how subjective the concept of hate is, how subjective the concept of hate speech is, meaning that whoever has the discretion to enforce these laws is predictably going to do so in ways that are not favorable to minority groups or dis- dissonant voices. Um, Nadine, since you're so modest, you, I'm not sure you mentioned the title of the book, but Andy is going to do that right now for us all. Yes, the book is called uh, Hate, While Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And that book is in print, popular, and uh, available on Amazon.com, I see. And also available on Audible, as I've been a fan of Audible ever since it, it, it was founded many decades ago now. And so one of the biggest thrills of my life was that I got to perform my own book for the Audible recording. I had to do an audition. And I'm very proud that I passed it. Well, you do have a little bit of practice speaking, I've been told. (laughs) (laughs) So um, how do you, uh, so so one might say that a natural extension of this thought might uh, be to discuss the concept of what's going on on campus and elsewhere in terms of things like uh, so-called cancel culture and so forth. Now, these are not necessarily uh, governmental actions um, and therefore perhaps not First Amendment issues strictly, but um, what is your reaction to, you know, accusations that the climate of open expression or speech and so forth on on campus is currently inhibited in an unhealthy way? So let me first make a really important general point, Andy, which is I have never considered my uh, concerns as a scholar, as an activist, to be limited to the Constitution, uh, devoted as I am to it. It is only one potential source of legal protection for goals that I support. And if the and same thing for the ACLU, by the way. Uh, it is the American Civil Liberties Union, not the American Constitutional Law Union. So if something that we mm. think should be a protected civil liberty, you know, if the Constitution happens to be available to provide a, a recourse, we will use it. But if something is not protected as a constitutional right, we don't fold our tents and go home. We look for other mechanisms to protect uh, the right. And that's one of the reasons why the ACLU has always strongly lobbied, for example, for uh, anti-discrimination laws that uh, impose those anti-discrimination responsibilities on private sector entities that are not bound by the Constitution at all. So in my passion for uh, freedom of speech, I'm very happy when the First Amendment is broadly interpreted by the Supreme Court as it was in the Tinker case. But uh, I also am very concerned about, in addition to having 
protective free speech law, which would include some statutory protections that go beyond protections that are uh, provided under the Constitution. Uh, and look, if you don't mind, I'd like to give an example because it relates Please. directly back to the young Akhil, uh, crusading student newspaper mm-hmm. editor uh, and essayist. Uh, as Akhil well knows, the Supreme Court very narrowly construed, and I would say misconstrued, it's holding in the Tinker case in a 1988 case, also an ACLU case called uh, Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer, in which it involved exactly the same factual situation Akil is talking about. Student newspaper journalists who, uh, in Hazelwood, Missouri, who uh, had two stories literally excised from the school newspaper by the principal who thought that the stories were too controversial. Uh, one was about student pregnancy, and one was about uh, students whose parents were getting divorced. And uh, unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled in that case that the school newspaper should be seen as an as an organ of the school itself, not as an outlet for the express, expression uh, by the students. And therefore, uh, if the school made a reasonable determination that the particular article was inconsistent with or undermined the values or concerns of the school, that could be a justification for suppressing the speech. Well, so we had the Supreme Court had not too narrowly construed the First Amendment as not providing protection for students in that case, but uh, the ACLU argued all over the country and in some states successfully uh, that state legislatures should pass laws extending protection to uh, student newspapers to declare uh, as a matter of state law that these were deemed to be agencies uh, not of the expressive outlets, not of the schools themselves, but of the students, and they could have disclaimers on their mastheads that made that very clear uh, that the, these publications were not there in the imprimatur of the school. Uh, so even going beyond any kind of legal protection, my ultimate goal is to have a free speech culture not only a legal protections for free speech, but a culture, a society, uh, a community in which freedom of speech is celebrated, uh, number one, understood, number two, celebrated, number three, exercised by everybody. And that means as I say, educating people as to uh, the value of freedom of speech, including its value in relation to other concerns that are deeply important to them, whatever their causes are, and also enabling everybody in our society to actually exercise and enjoy their freedom of speech, which means uh, education, it means uh, technological resources, it means um, making sure that people feel the self-confidence and are encouraged to speak up so that we actually are all really enjoying and using this right, not just abstractly paying uh, some kind of fealty to it. Uh, and this t- connects back to um, w- uh, where we began. You try not just to 
um, write about it um, in uh, your your books. You you try to embody it in your actions by speaking in all sorts of venues, and sometimes you're um, just uh, you have the 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 podium to yourself, or sometimes you're in a conversation with with friendly folk like like Andy and me. But you're also fearless, um, Nadine, in your willingness to debate folks whose ideas you think are really absolutely wrong maybe even evil sometimes but you on at the margins tend to think we're better off actually debating folks rather than trying to suppress them or ignore them the question and and that's you know um uh um why you you, you do 200 a year or, or i think one year maybe you even told me 300 or something um, <laughs> um but uh, i, I want to ask you have you ever personally because because um uh, uh one argument is oh, no, we shouldn't dignify this argument with um, even allowing the person to speak, and, and, and someone should never even speak on the other side because even by doing that, you're, you're dignifying the contrary position. And, and I think your default position is you're going to err on the side of, of generally being willing to, to debate anyone on almost, almost anyone on almost anything. The question is, have you ever um, said no? I'm not going to show up because um, I don't want to dignify um, that that other position or person. Do you have um, you know you know people will draw the line in different places. Where have you drawn the line in your own speaking? I had excellent question, Akil, and I do ask myself before each speaking opportunity: Is this a potential occasion for me to advance my goals of educating and informing and inspiring and encouraging debate and, and, and dissent and discourse. And as you, the, the way the question is phrased, you're absolutely right. The default is yes. Uh, and I certainly have answered yes to debating people uh, with whom I have extremely uh, strong and, and extensive disagreements. I uh, was regularly on the lecture circuit with, you know, some of these names will not be recognizable to younger audience members. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly, who was the key crusader against the Equal Rights Amendment and uh, against reproductive freedom, extremely influential uh, in the 20th century. Uh, Ed Meese, who was Ronald Reagan's attorney general, boy, he kept going strong uh, for his He's still going strong in, in, in many capacities, but he's retired from the debate circuit. Uh, we debated each other on everything. I uh, repeatedly debated Justice Scalia, uh, among many, many others. Although we disagreed on a lot, I, here's a Yale connection. I really have very fond memories of, 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 of regularly debating William F. Buckley, who was just kind of a fun person to be around. Well, so was, so was Antonin Scalia. Um, but uh, the, I have said no twice to two invitations to debate, and I'm putting that in quotes, Milo Yiannopoulos. And the reason why I, I, I put debate in quotes is the reason why I, I said no without too much thinking, because I don't see what he's doing, and I've watched uh, videos of, of his presentations, I don't see it as engaging in, in ideas. It's, it's, it's a performance. It's a, 
uh, is a, he's a provocateur. Uh, that said, it, it was a it was a fairly close question with Ann Coulter, and I have debated her. Uh, she was a little bit c- close to that that category. She is a great performer, uh, but she's also a very substantive person. I'm not sure if people are, are aware that she's a law school graduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know she graduated from Cornell. I don't know if that was her law school or her undergraduate. And especially if she is in front of a fairly sophisticated audience, she has a whole different persona, completely different from uh, how she presents herself and, and, and deals with the issues in different fora. So uh, it was yes to her, but Milo, I thought, was over the line uh, in that it wouldn't, in my view, it wouldn't be an occasion for a competition of ideas. And um, there's one other situation where I turned down the invitation because I did think the platform wasn't so much the, the, the I was would have been the only speaker, but some white supremacist radio program wanted me on to talk about free speech, and I said no, I don't. That's not an audience that you know they're very convinced of their own free speech rights. <laughs> they're not going to be interested in hearing about anybody else's, so that's not a good use of my time. Well, that's interesting because that seems like it might be intentioned a little bit with the sort of Skokie, uh, um, you know, ethic, shall we say. Right. So I think the point that I'm trying to make, Andy, is that even if I would happen to substantively agree, and I might well substantively agree with Milo on his right to be provocative and to say things that are upsetting to to members of the of the campus community, that I didn't think that I would enhance anybody's understanding uh, by using those particular platforms, right? Uh, Milo is already convinced of his right to speak, and uh, the white supremacists are are very uh, glad to exercise their rights already. It sounds like that you were thinking that you were being used more as a a prop rather than engaging in a real debate. That, but that said, here I will give um, a hats off to, there are people who have very generously and at great length engaged more on a one-on-one basis with even confirmed hate mongers to uh, leaders of hate monger organizations to to win them over, uh, to help in the process that, that they, they call redemption. And, and some very moving accounts have been written through memoirs and, and and other books, one famous one a couple of years ago was Megan Phelps Roper, called "Unfollow: uh, Loving and Leaving the Westboro Baptist Church," and that's the notorious church based in Kansas, whose website sets, sums up their philosophy: www.godhatesfags.org. And they were the ones that were demonstrating outside funerals of slain members of the U.S. Armed Services and basically against gays and Jews and Catholics and and basically anybody who isn't a member of their church. It's a family organization. Megan was raised in it, and she went on Twitter in her early 20s to try to recruit people to the Westboro Baptist Church instead she ended up um, questioning her own views, ultimately repudiating them, and at enormous personal cost, 
leaving the church. I mean, this had been her whole family, her whole her whole world. Uh, and she took her younger sister with us with her, and has since been dedicating her time to to trying to um, repair the damage that she acknowledges that she and her family did, reaching out to other people to try to prevent them from um, going in that direction. And there are there are other similar accounts. And I just, you know, she describes and, uh, and people in similar positions describe how very patient, in Megan's case, there was a, a, a rabbi in Israel who was discussing uh, Bible verses with her, you know, the Bible verses that she had interpreted and her church had interpreted as conveying God's uh, displeasure with LGBTQ people and others and, you know, like a one-on-one tutorial, ongoing seminar to get her to re-examine her views. And, um, and, and similar accounts have been told of people who reach out with enormous empathy and compassion to try to win back these, these souls one by one. I, I, I haven't had the patience to do that, but I'm so, or the time to do that, but I, I'm so grateful to, to those who do. And so maybe I shouldn't have turned down that white supremacist radio show invitation. Right. It sounds like you're on the one hand saying that, you know, that it's sometimes hard to tell whose mind can be changed. Exactly. But it's usually not going to be changed through heavy-handed debate of, you know, at the idea or abstraction level, because if you look at what is it that drives people in these directions, it's usually not pre-existing ideology. It's something else about their psyche, their associate, you know, their social situations, their family situations. They're looking for some sense of identity and belonging. And so you're not going to fight against that by, by fighting the ideas that will simply entrench them. You have to offer them other opportunities for identity and belonging. So you mentioned um, the reproductive freedom and Roe versus Wade and so forth. Um, So where do you think Roe versus Wade uh, stands among uh, among the pantheon of civil liberties uh, that are uh, either the concern of the ACLU or that are in jeopardy or that are considered vital um where would you put it on that uh on that um on that path i i personally admire the decision in roe versus wade enormously and it usually is misunderstood and misdescribed uh, by people on both sides of what unfortunately is an extremely polarized debate because I and I repeatedly reread Justice Blackman's opinion, and I see it as showing great respect for all of the uh, concerns at issue and a great deal of sensitivity to people with different views and different beliefs and, and different experiences and trying his best and i think it's you know hard to do better at at at, at taking all of these into account without you know too quickly dismissing 
one or the other quote side close quote which is unfortunately how 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 debates tend to uh, now be reduced to are you pro-life or are you pro-choice well hopefully everybody is pro-life and hopefully everybody is also pro-choice when you think about what those concepts mean and um and blackman one of the points that he made that is so I, I virtually never hear uh, in the in the popular discourse about this uh, alluded to. Uh, he said the Supreme Court doesn't have to decide this imponderable question of when life begins because you know, neither scientists nor philosophers nor theologians can agree on that. Uh, but we certainly can agree that the fetus is at least potential life. And we certainly can agree that as at least potential life, it deserves an enormous amount of respect and reverence and protection from the government. And he drew what I think is a very sensitive line. It's been mocked, uh, the so-called trimester system. But if you look at what he was trying to accomplish uh, of giving respect to potential life, but also giving and also giving enormous respect to the woman who uh, has the unique, um, it's uniquely impacted in ways that only she can most deeply appreciate by the pregnancy, uh, I thought he did a very good job. And in the Supreme Court uh, in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in a wonderfully eloquent opinion, co-authored by Justice Souter, to whom we recently referred earlier, and Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, um, reaffirmed the core holding of Roe versus Wade, and I thought with very similar sensitivity to the countervailing concerns here. So these were, if I dare say, can I use the word moderate? Um, reasonable. I'm not going to say compromise because I really don't think it was a compromise of the underlying values. But we're, you know, we're now describing this as an either-or uh, situation. I guess neither side was, neither side got a clear, a clear victory or a clear loss, and that's probably why it's um, misunderstood and, and and disliked. And Nadine, I'm not sure that you and I have ever talked about this, but um, uh, uh, given what you just said, what would your views be about a law that doesn't uh, restrict the, the woman, the pregnant woman, uh, the, the, the mother, um, depending on uh, how, how you would describe it, um, but um, would attach very serious penalties, even criminal penalties, um, to, um, let's say, a third party, could be the biological father or someone who actually thinks he's not the biological father, who um, intentionally and knowingly ends the life um, of um, a very much wanted fetus. Let's imagine mm -hmm. it's even in the first trimester or something. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and the legislature says, you know, that's, that's murder. Um, uh, um, we're not at all threatening the, 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 the choices and the rights of the um, woman. And it's an assault against her. Now, let's say mm -hmm. if, if a, a bullet penetrates her um, abdomen and, and kills the, the fetus, and intentionally so, it's an assault on her, but it's also a crime against this independent, morally significant um, entity. Um, and, um, and we're going to call that murder, um, uh, but it's... Um, uh, 
uh, it's we're not limiting the woman's rights. In fact, we're trying to affirm her right, which is a right to to um, to um, choose to be a mother as well as to choose um, to terminate a pregnancy. But uh, some uh, folks who are um, in the pro uh, choice camp think that that's a thin edge of a very dangerous web uh, wedge. They don't want to acknowledge um, this interest at all, but. From what I thought I heard you say, I think your position might be different or, or maybe not. I'd love to uh, hear way, your thoughts. The way, the way you describe it, Akil, it sounds uh, very, uh, it sounds completely reasonable to me. I'm not, I'm not an expert in criminal law, so I don't know. Maybe the term murder might not be applicable because that might imply that we're um, acknowledging the full-fledged humanity and personhood, to use the legal term, uh, which would definitely have other implications that might well undermine the woman's um, choices here. So, But, you know, on the stipulation that the law would be designed in a way that would not in one wit reduce her rights, I think the law can respect not only, it can respect certainly her independent interest, as you describe it, in in wanting to carry this pregnancy to term. And we all know how, how deeply distressing it is to uh, women and, and, and others when uh, there's a miscarriage or, or, you know, for some other reason, they, the pregnancy does not come to term. Deeply, deeply, deeply distressing. Uh, but I... Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, I think that I could be read out of the pro-choice camp for for saying that. I, in my own experience, I have uh, repeatedly encountered opposition on the part of many pro-choice, too many pro-choice advocates to even engage with, I'm, and I'm using these labels just because they're familiar, as I indicated earlier, they're oversimplified. Um, so with disclaimer uh, about that, uh, but many pro-choice advocates will refuse to debate uh, pro-life advocates. I accept those invitations, or I did until I became full-time um, immersed in free speech. But even very recently, I've done some of those debates, and uh, and and by the same token, I have encountered pro-life advocates who will refuse to extend the debate beyond abortion to what to me is of great concern and interest, which is there are so many issues that should unite us, right? Don't we? If we want, you want to reduce the number of abortions. Um, isn't a really effective way to do that, to increase information and education um, and the avail- easy availability of contraception? Um, or looking at the other end, because we know that so many abortions are uh, by women who feel who are impoverished and feel they don't have the resources as a wherewithal to raise a child, uh, to be sure that there are uh, resources for childcare and for child support and mm-hmm. nutrition and education and so forth. So you know to make sure that every pregnancy uh, and every abortion that still exists is is. Truly, because of you know voluntarism and informed consent on the part of the woman that she truly has options um, that are that are real and not just theoretical. Um, just to and respond, many of them refuse to do that. They just want to reduce abortions, and that's all they want to talk about. 
Yeah, I think it's not so much reduce abortions as eliminate abortions. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and, and I think that's that's the problem with, you know, the uh, what otherwise sounds like a very reasonable proposal that you're making, which is that it's not really, I don't think you would satisfy most pro-life uh, advocates if you said, okay, we're going to reduce abortions by 90% through these, mm-hmm. you know, through mm-hmm. these uh, approaches. Um, but just to, to react to uh, Akil's thing, um, you know, I think that the uh, you correctly immediately identified the problem here with the word murder. So in the U.S. Code defines murder as the unlawful killing of a human being with malice mm-hmm. aforethought. So to call it murder would, would, would be to endorse that def- maybe you could call it feticide or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, or, mm-hmm. or have, have a separate category of, of, of criminal action, uh, something it's, like that. It's, I, that's a really good point. I, uh, I'm going to give a plug for another forthcoming terrific book about constitutional law in addition to Akil's, um, which one or both of you might have read. It's, I think it's just, been, it's just been published by Jamal Green at Columbia called How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. And he thinks that we, you know, again, speaking of binaries, as we were doing, the oversimplification of pro-choice and pro-life, um, he, his basic thesis is that um, by giving so much protection to what it defines as a fundamental right and virtually no protection to anything or very little protection to something that does not fit into that rarefied category. Um, the Supreme Court has in our jurisprudence and legal culture have, have, have added to polarization. And that whereas if we had left these issues to the political process, there could have been more opportunity for accommodation and negotiation. And he uses abortion as a major example, uh, focusing on Germany, where um, for complicated reasons, uh, the um, this was open, it was an issue that was open to political compromise. And initially, the pro-choice and pro-life factions were very dissatisfied. But now there seems to be, a, you know, a, a longstanding detente. Abortion is much more accessible uh, and more easily accessible than it is in the United States. And it, politics and judicial politics are not 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 caught up in this topic anymore. Uh, Jamal is one of my uh, uh, students, and I teach regularly at Columbia, and uh, um, so he's my colleague there. And um, Andy and I, I hope to um, have him on the podcast. I, I think you may have even blurbed the book, or that you've said something yes, nice about I did. it. Yeah. Uh, yes, um, I did. So, so um, you and I can both independently um, uh, reach out to Jamal and try yes, to persuade I'll him to, to do the podcast. Uh, I, I'm sure he won't need any persuasion. I'm going to be speaking with him at an event centered on his book at Stanford uh, tomorrow. Okay, so well, s- say hi. <laughs> so, you know, after 9-11, uh, we changed the subject a little here. You know, we, we were told that, okay, the world has now changed forever. And, uh, and there were, you know, numerous abridgments of civil liberties that, that took place at that time, you know, legislatively and otherwise. And just the other day I saw a report on what looked like uh, FISA abuses, for example. Yes. Um, yes. So, what would you say is the most dangerous residue that remains from this period? 
and for the listeners who don't know, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which may sound like it applies to foreign spies, but in fact has been used as a uh, justification in quotation marks for massive data gathering about completely unsuspected innocent Americans. Remember Edward Snowden's revelations? And I say it with a question mark because I think many people may have forgotten it. So the lasting legacy, unfortunately, Andy, is that we are now and will apparently forever be in a post 9-11 world where enormous expansions of government power of various sorts, including to engage in surveillance uh, of online communications, other electronic communications of all of us uh, without individualized suspicion, uh, are, are just in place forever, apparently. The, we may remember that the enormous expanded powers of government that were included in the so-called Patriot Act, which passed less than one month after the attacks, with virtually no hearings, virtually no debate, uh, many very controversial provisions that had sunsets attached to them. They were supposed to expire after a year or two years. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, not a single one of those sunset provisions has actually gone into to effect, Congress keeps rubber stamping extension after extension after extension. Uh, most recently, about a year ago, there was some hope that we might finally uh, repeal some of these over-expansive surveillance powers, and and that fizzled in concerns about the pandemics, the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, once a violation of civil liberties is enacted, a law that violates civil liberties, it's almost impossible to get it off the books, and it lies around, sometimes used under the radar screen. People have lost interest, so there's much less um, vigilance, much less protest, and sometimes it can just be taken out and dusted next time there's an apparent or feared uh, national security crisis for for government to to use. One example I remember is um, back in 19, the early 90s, after the United States had won the Cold War, and we still had on our books, you know, a whole arsenal of legal measures that allowed uh, government surveillance and uh, other kinds of restrictions on, on individual civil liberties in the name of fighting against communism and the threat of communism. Then New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan proposed a law called Ending, it was, would have been a federal statute, ending the Cold War at home, which would have taken off the federal statute books all of these anti-civil liberties laws that were justified uh, in order to successfully fight against Soviet communism. And it never passed. And, you know, we can go back to the Espionage Act and the, uh, from uh, the World War One era, the Sedition Act. Many people are astonished to learn that, that those are still on the books and they are, have, are still being enforced. Hmm. Well, you mentioned the pandemic, um, and I think that's, it's an inter there are some interesting issues, um, you know, related to that, um, that, uh, that are starting to show themselves, things like vaccine passports and so forth. Um, now, I personally want to go back to Paris. Um, 
and I'm going <laughs> to need some form of vaccine passport, et cetera. What do you identify? What have you identified as the issues that we need to be careful of here? Um, I, I here I'm going to defer to my colleagues in the ACLU and organizations such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which are really uh, getting into the weeds on on these issues. And I would say, as with so many issues, the <clears throat> devil is in the details. Um, I, one would have serious concerns about privacy. Um, certainly you as a doctor, Andy, would be very cognizant of that, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want people's medical information to be uh, easily available and accessible because it just, you know, can be used for, for ne negative nefarious purposes, but also because it's deeply uh, personal and, and, and none of anybody else's business except for narrow, specific, compellingly important purposes of which public health certainly is one. But uh, the law would have to be crafted very, very carefully to protect against uh, uh, privacy, unjustified privacy invasions. It would also have to, we'd, we'd be very concerned about equality, uh, that we want, don't, don't want to deprive people of access to, you know, fundamental services and opportunities. Uh, I, there would be concerns about religious liberty if people have some religious objection to their being vaccinated or their kids being vaccinated. And I, I know that, you know, experts within the ACLU and other organizations are, are focusing on these issues. So I, I'm, I'm confident that, that something could be done um, that would have public health benefits that would outweigh the potential civil liberties concerns. Uh, with this reservation that I'm so skeptical about any government promises to protect privacy, uh, because there is just, and it's not only the government, private sector entities as well, promise that certain sensitive information won't be disclosed. And next thing you know, it is disclosed. Yes. But of course, um, you know, there's a long history of, of vaccination being required to travel to various countries. You have to be vaccinated against, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. um, to, to go to, to countries where diseases are rampant. So just from the point of view of the, disclosing that information, it doesn't seem like anything new. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, a, that's a really good point. I assume that the digitalization of the records and uh, the easy access uh, through, through search and accessibility to hackers and evildoers is probably greater now than it was in earlier eras. And of course, we've also seen the you know, people claiming, uh, making claims of civil, liber civil liberties in questions of things like mask wearing and something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, and there I think you, you really have a, a conflict between this notion of sort of autonomous civil liberties as well as the, um, the, the liberty to, to be protected from someone else. In other words, you know, if you, you don't wear a mask, then I'm exposed to you. So Right. Um, and this, this, these have been perennial debates. Uh, uh, I'm con was constantly getting complaints when I was president of the ACLU from people who were complaining, "Why don't you bring a lawsuit against mandatory seatbelt laws? Why don't you bring a lawsuit against mandatory helmet laws?" Uh, you know, people who just feel so strongly that their individual autonomy will automatically uh, outweigh 
any countervailing interests. And the truth is that even the most ardent civil libertarian, to the best of my knowledge, has never said that any right is absolute other than something that stays entirely internal, such as freedom of thought or freedom of belief. But when you're talking about freedom to even to express your thought, uh, let alone to act on it or your belief, um, government does have powers in appropriately limited circumstances, but uh, not in zero circumstances. So Nadine, I know um, our time is limited, but before uh, we let you go, and I think we've got maybe about 15 more minutes if, if you could spare sure. them, um, uh, at least three issues that are um, very topical just to get your quick takes on. Um, uh, so um, uh, one um, is uh, how best to think about um, a religious liberty, free exercise in particular. Um, uh, the Supreme Court, I think this term is, is um, possibly rethinking um, whether religious liberty should just be protected by a kind of thin anti-discrimination principle or um, with a, 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 a more um, broad um, judicial role uh, that would protect um, religion even from certain governmental regulations that weren't designed to discriminate against um, religious practice but might have a certain effects that uh, interfere um, with religious uh, practice. And, and that's uh, certainly come up in the pandemic, for example. Uh, so um, your views on that and the ACLU's views on, on, on that, and then I've got a couple, uh, two, more after, uh, two more quick takes after that one. Well, first of all, on the ACLU's views, I'm going to say I'm agnostic because I have not been able to keep up with the plethora of position statements that uh, are issued in either briefs in particular cases or um, uh, re reactions or testimony to particular on uh, particular legislation and for my and that was a pun when I said I'm agnostic uh, mm -hmm. okay your readers didn't need me to point that out we were smiling uh, <laughs> um, and secondly, for myself, this is such a complicated issue. Again, the religious pun, the devil is in the details, as is always the case when what we are trying to do is to accommodate competing concerns. And I, this is not something that I have been able to focus on with deep, undivided intensity in the recent past. But many years ago, in 1990, to be precise, even before you and I met, Akil, that's how far back in history, uh, the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, uh, reduced the previous protection that had been granted to religious liberty uh, by, in fact, saying that the only laws that will even raise a free exercise concern are those where the government intentionally, deliberately disadvantages religion and not laws that are neutrally written but happen to unequally impose a significant burden on religion. And the ACLU objected to that, uh, disagreed with it, along with, to the best of my knowledge, every religious denomination 
um, in the country and 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 the whole cross section of civil liberties organizations, uh, we persuaded Congress to pass a law lovingly called RIFRA, an acronym for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which would have restored the prior Supreme Court standard that uh, any law, even if not intentionally and even if neutrally written, but if it imposes a substantial burden on a an exercise of religion, it's not going to be automatically unconstitutional, but it's going to be presumptively unconstitutional. The way a law that disadvantaged freedom of speech would be presumptively unconstitutional, and the government would have a heavy burden of, of justification. I testify in support of RIFRA in both the Senate and the House, and I was very happy when it was passed, and uh, and, and I think it's fair to say that the whole civil liberties community shared that perspective. Years went by, and the claims that were being asserted under, and I should, you know, as a footnote, that law was partially invalidated by uh, the Supreme Court, but states passed similar laws. Um, and, and, and now I think much of the progressive end of the political spectrum, as well as many civil liberties organizations, including the ACLU, are very concerned about the potential downsides of religious freedom uh, restoration acts if they are being used as a as a as a not as a shield for um, disadvantaged discriminated against excluded religious groups the the, the religious group that was involved in the uh, 1990 case that i mentioned was the native american church um, but if they are being used as a sword to by uh, powerful religious entities to outweigh anti-discrimination laws that protect, for example, LGBTQ people and other marginalized minorities, that that's not the appropriate balance. And, you know, it, it plays into abortion as well as you have, uh, and not to mention contraception, or when you have religious objectors to abortion saying they're not going to provide services, they're not going to provide uh, hospital services, they're not going to provide pharmaceutical um, um, uh, supplies. Um, you know, we have deep conflicts now between fundamental rights, you know, women's equality and equality on the basis of sexual orientation and, and so forth um, uh, versus religious liberty. So one point that I would, so to, aside from saying this is a complicated issue, aren't they all, aren't all interesting issues complicated? Uh, I also think that even if religious freedom were given a very strong presumption, it's not absolute. And I think some of the competing concerns that uh, I've alluded to may well outweigh religious liberty concerns in, in particular facts and circumstances. But I would be hesitant to formulate a global rule given the many different uh, factual situations and the many different competing concerns. And if this were the real world, Akil, I would love to hear your thoughts on it and Andy's as well. <laughs> um, so um, 
here's a second one. We'll, we'll, um, I'm sure we're going to come back to this in other podcast issues uh, episodes. So, um, and especially after the Supreme Court uh, tells us uh, what it thinks at the end of the term. But, but here's something where the Supreme Court has um, weighed in, and I don't think is in the process of of reconsideration. Um, and that's um, a Citizens United. Um, an issue that mm-hmm. has um, divided um, very civil libertarians. We're going to actually, um, mm-hmm. uh, our next podcast episode is actually going to be with the great Floyd Abrams, our mutual friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he actually was supportive of the, the court's mm-hmm. uh, ruling in Citizens mm-hmm. United. And Kathleen Sullivan, mm-hmm. a, a great civil libertarian on the left, uh, um, mm-hmm. has been mm-hmm. of uh, uh, the same view. I, I myself think on the facts of Citizens United, it, it was a, it was rightly decided and actually rather easy. Mm-hmm. But but lots of my mm-hmm. friends, oh, they sharply mm-hmm. disagree. Um, what's your take? Mm-hmm. I continue to be very supportive of the Supreme Court's decisions. And it's so hard to answer this question briefly, Akhil. I, I constantly revisit it. This semester I was teaching freedom of speech, so uh, I reread the admittedly very truncated version. It's a very long opinion. Uh, but it gets such a bum rap 99% of the time uh, when it is described, even by media commentators who should know better. It is completely missed described as a law, you know, as having struck down a law that allows giant wealthy corporations to, you know, contribute as much money as they want to any political candidate. I mean, that is so wrong, both in terms of what it does say and what it doesn't say. It's a law that what was struck down was a law that applies to not only all corporations, including nonprofit corporations as well as for-profit, which means it's a law that applies to pick your, your preference, you know, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood, the NRA, Sierra Club, on and on and on. And it also applies to labor unions. Never do we hear that uh, mentioned, right? Um, and, it, and it does not apply to wealthy individuals. It's usually described as we want to stop wealthy people and powerful corporations from pouring their money into uh, candidates' campaigns. Not at all. It it allows uh, independent expenditures, which means completely independent of any campaign. If If the expenditure is coordinated with the campaign in any way, it's treated as a contribution, which is still illegal. I mean, there are very tight limits on the extent to which unions or corporations may uh, make contributions uh, to to candidates. So this means spending your money that your donors have given you to advocate for your causes in connection with an election. And it was defined, the law was so sweeping that you could not even mention the name of somebody who was running for office um, within a significant period before the election. Well, the ACLU, you know, takes with not having that many resources, spends them carefully, and would would issue our our and the ACLU by its own charter 
is completely barred from advocating for or against the election of any candidate. We would only advocate on issues. But sometimes mentioning the name of a candidate or an official is actually helpful in addressing the issue. And sometimes they can't be always the campaign season is a time when people's attention is focused on the issues. So, you know, at the time that the law was passed, we would have been taking out ads leading up to the elections to say, President Bush, please support the sunsetting of the Patriot Act uh, uh, provisions that unduly curtail civil liberties of innocent Americans. And that would have been a crime. Yeah. Uh, I would have faced five years in, in prison for doing that. And, you know, I told my dear husband that, and and he said, you know, I don't think most people realize that yeah. that's what the law does. Yes. Um, and uh, I said, well, you know, the Supreme Court uh, said we could bring maybe an as-applied challenge to, to the law. And uh, this was after the Supreme Court had initially rejected a constitutional challenge to the law as written. And, uh, I, and, and Ellie said, well, I think you should do that. And I said, but you realize I could face a five-year prisoner. <laughs> Is that a price worth paying to make this point? And he said, yes. <laughs> um, oh. you, you, you're, you, and you're absolutely right. Um, everyone thinks it's about campaign contributions. It's not. It's about ads. And by the way, you know, if people don't uh, are persuaded by the ads, then, uh, then the ad has n- no effect. It, it's, an, it's, a, it's an appeal to, to the voters, it's not so different than uh, an, an op-ed or an endorsement. Um, and, and, and those op-eds and endorsements occur in, in newspapers that are run by, oh my gosh, corporations like the, the New know. York Times. So, yeah. um, so I'm yeah. with you on this. Um, uh, uh, so, um, uh, Let me tell you something about, I'm so happy to learn that, Akil, because I'm always counting on the fingers of one hand. The liberals that agree with us on this. Um, I'll tell you something so embarrassing. Um, Floyd and I, a few years ago, did one of these IQ squared, intelligence mm-hmm. squared mm-hmm. debates on... Yeah, Bob uh, Rosencrantz. Yeah, uh, alum was the founder of that organization. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, who was that? Bob Rosencrantz. Oh, of course, yes. Um, so um, we were we were standing up for uh, Citizens United, and our opponents were Bert Newborn, former legal director of the ACLU, and yes. Zephyr Teachout. Zephyr yes. Teachout, oh, yes. another Yale governor. alum. She was then okay. She was running, but another for, credential for she governor, was for governor, governor with Tim yeah. with Tim Wu as with her Tim lieutenant Wu. governor. Yeah. Yes. So, and they did a spectacular job. Uh, but I thought Floyd and I did a really good job. And you know, in the IQ squared debates, they take a poll yes. of the in-person audience. This was in the days when we were still having an in-person uh, event, and before the debate and after the debate, and as to how many people have changed their minds, guess how many minds Floyd and I changed. Zero. Oh my goodness. Zero. But, Not but, one person but, in the but, live audience. But 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 but, but the, the other side didn't either. Um, so you no, didn't you didn't lose uh, ground. No, you, you know. I, well, no, I think they. I, I, maybe I don't remember that. But okay. you know, I'm sure that was a first for Floyd. I'm not going to say anything about myself. But mm-hmm. people have very entrenched yeah. feelings. Yeah. Um. And and I find it useful to say, look. Suppose it had been a book and not um, a, yeah. a, a, a movie, and and uh, um, so here's the third one because I, I I know well, before we before we leave that one, let me just uh, interject uh, for a moment. Um, so I understand that this makes sense uh, as a legal argument, but in terms of the, uh, you're an advocate for the marketplace of ideas. Yes. 
Um, isn't it possible that when you throw enough money at something that you distort the marketplace of ideas, yeah. whether it's through, you know, scientific knowledge of marketing or sheer volume of drowning out opposing arguments yeah. and so yeah. forth? Yeah, these are very big questions, and Andy and, and Akila, what I said about Citizens United, which may have been you know, too wordy for you, is just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of the issues that have to be addressed, including the, the very important policy concern that you raised, Andy. So that was not at all you know, my whole spiel on the case, and, and not the way I would put it if I was speaking to uh, a more general audience, perhaps. Um, but um, yes, there is a real concern about leveraging economic power into into political power in um, and, and in a, in, a, in a danger in a way that endangers democracy. So I completely share the goals of those who advocate restrictions on campaign spending. Of course, I want our democratic political process to be as open to all voices and all candidates and all constituents and all lobbyists and advocates as as equally as possible and, and searching for ways to do that consistent with respecting the free speech rights of individuals and groups of individuals to band together to make their advocacy more expensive and more, more effective, right? No pun intended, because the Supreme Court in a very historic case involving the NAACP, another corporation, uh, recognized that the right to band together in groups, and whether the group be an unincorporated association or a labor union or a corporation, uh, that your individual voice is go going to be much more effective um, if you are part of an organization, that your, 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 your contribution uh, in terms of your ideas might not even be heard unless you're doing it through part of a group. And also, your contribution in terms of ideas was not going to be heard unless you spend money to advance it, whether it be money to print a pamphlet or whether it be money to take out an ad on broadcast TV or whatever money is involved in putting together a podcast, which I'm sure is substantial, but not, not out of the reach of many people. Um, the Supreme Court has long recognized as a common sense matter, to the best of my knowledge, not a single justice dissenting from the proposition that if you limit people's right to spend money to advance their views, that is an abridgment of the freedom of speech or the press, to quote the word in the First Amendment. Uh, so it's a line drawing process and where I think there is room for healthy debate, uh, not whether corporations have speech rights, of course they do, not whether spending money uh, can be uh, uh, can, you know, it, it necessary to exercise free speech rights, of course it can, but in the balancing between what are the free freedom of speech concerns versus what are the countervailing concerns. And I think we really have to recognize that no matter how well intended these expenditure limits might be, they often are counterproductive. Uh, first and foremost, they serve as incumbent protection right. acts. So, uh, you know, again, Andy, we can share the goals and the concerns, but we shouldn't assume that just because something is labeled reform, which sounds really good, uh, that is actually going to have a positive impact. And, and if I can, here's one of my favorite pet peeves recently. 
because so many liberals and including so many Democratic members of Congress just, you know, hate Citizens United and denounce it and are saying that, you know, big fat corporations have too much power to raise their voices in supporting issues and candidates. And yet it's these very same liberals and Democrats who are putting pressure on the biggest, most powerful, wealthiest corporations in the world, namely the tech giants, to stifle other people's voices directly, to directly deplatform certain messages and certain speakers, including elected officials, dare I mention, the then president of the United States. I mean, if they're saying we don't, we think it's distorting the democratic process for these corporations to advocate on their own, isn't it an infinitely greater distortion for them to silence and you know, impose a lifelong prior restraint, the most serious form of First Amendment and violation on elected officials and, and their constituents who we have a right to hear their information and ideas. I find that just mind-boggling. Uh, so when Andy and I talk about these issues, I have a kind of a fairly clean distinction. It's crude. It's oversimple, perhaps, but it's pretty clean. A campaign contributions can be limited because um, people find ways to take those uh, campaign contributions sometimes and use them for personal purposes, and and that's kind of uh, corrupt. It's like bribing someone. Um, so they take campaign funds and they pay the the brother-in-law of the candidate, or they use it for some personal purpose, or um, and and they and they manage to launder the money basically. But but ads, I think, are inherently clean. Basically, they work if they work only by persuading folks. I don't buy the drowning out argument. Um, there's plenty um, of uh, outlets out there, broadcast and, and print and, um, and, and otherwise, and, um, and people get to decide what persuades them. Um, a book, uh, a magazine, a newspaper, an ad, um, a podcast, um, and, uh, and, um, and people aren't actually being drowned out. If you want to, you can find information, and at the end, the voters get to decide um, whether they find the ad compelling um, or not. Um, so, um, and we've from seen a fan so of, many of, of where they don't right, where candidates who spend lots of money and and don't and get and and and, yeah. and uh, so so here's the final. Um, well, that's because not everybody gets to hire Don <coughs> Draper. Um, uh, so, but not all of Don's ads actually. Andy got me hooked on on, on Mad Men. Oh, in, in fact, so this is you know you know an Andy Akeel inside uh, uh, thing. But he's been trying to. I loved it too. He's been trying to get me hooked on Sopranos, and I'm not loving it yet. But I any- tried that a couple of times, and it didn't work. Okay. Well, Although that said, I, my husband and I, for some reason, rewatched The Godfather in the past two nights, and it is so spectacular. Right. Andy and I are big Godfather fans, which is why I thought I'd like The Sopranos, and I'm not loving it yet. But anyway, um, but but we are big Mad Men fans, and um, but 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 ads work if they work. Because people are persuaded, and when you start saying, "Oh, people are just sheep; they're automaton," yeah. that they, 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 you know, um, that's then. Well, then they shouldn't be voting. We shouldn't have democracy if, if people yeah. can't decide for themselves. And and yeah. that's what you embody. You're going to make an argument, and someone else is going to make an argument sometimes, and then you let your audience think for themselves. Um, I wanted to, um, the final um, issue uh, uh, that I want to raise, and then maybe Andy will will just bring us to a close. Um, uh, this. Um, 
it takes me back to an episode, I think it was a sophomore in Yale College, and a representative of the ACLU came to campus, and I asked him a question, um, and there wasn't an edge behind it, but I was just interested, um, and it's now back in the news today. And I said, the ACLU historically has, has um, championed the First Amendment to a great extent. What about the Second Amendment? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the meme, and the Supreme Court has recently just granted cert in a, in mm-hmm. a case involving um, uh, uh, guns in, in New York. And, and the meme that's out there on the conservative side is mm-hmm. um, some folks um, are treating the Second Amendment a- as a second-class citizen within mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. of rights. Um, what's your take on uh, the Second Amendment? Well, my personal take, because as I said earlier, the ACLU is um, not the American Constitutional Law Union, and Mm -hmm. we have not definitely not prioritized uh, certain rights that are embodied in in certain amendments. On the Second Amendment, I would say the ACLU has been very active in protecting the kinds of civil liberties that we have specialized in, privacy against unwarranted search and seizure, due process of law, freedom of speech, uh, for gun rights, gun owners, and gun rights advocates. We have regularly teamed up with groups such as the NRA, which is anathema to so many liberals, and we get a lot of trouble for doing that. The Second Amendment Foundation, for when, when their other constitutional rights are being violated, which does definitely happen too often, merely by virtue of advocating for their Second Amendment rights. They have been subject to unjustified searches and seizures. Um, most recently in New York, Andrew Cuomo, who's deeply hostile to the NRA, uh, encouraged a number of state agencies to not do any uh, business at all with the NRA and, and, and you know, denying them access to banking and insurance services that they needed in order to do business. And over controversy uh, among ACLU members and leaders, nothing's not controversial in that organization of free thinkers and speakers, um, the National ACLU filed a friend of the court brief in support of the NRA's challenge on First Amendment grounds. And, you know, you always have to point out the underlying principles. Another governor could come along and hate Planned Parenthood or the ACLU and decide to take the same steps. And uh, so that's a really important role that the ACLU consistently has played and I'm very proud of uh, with respect to the rights of gun owners. Um, In terms of my own views on the Second Amendment, I really was a fan of Justice Scalia's uh, opinion in the D.C. case in 2008 in which, uh, for the first time, the court upheld a uh, private right of gun ownership under the Second Amendment. Um, By the way, I, 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 let me let me say I'm I'm an agnostic as to the historical arguments and forgive me Akhil I can't remember what your conclusion was on it. I, I, I thought- I'm 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 with you in thinking that Heller and City of Chicago versus McDonald were basically rightly decided. There is a right to mm-hmm. have a gun in the home for self protection, um, not just uh, because of the founding um, uh, standing alone, but because of the history of Reconstruction. Blacks 
um, in Reconstruction yeah. were recognized as needing to have guns in homes for self-protection. Um, and because yeah. it's, you know, even if they weren't the Second Amendment at all, it's an unenumerated yeah. right rooted in American yeah. custom, um, not so different from a Griswold. Uh, liberals think that yes. you should have yes. sex in the home and, and conservatives yes. think you should have <laughs> guns in the home. And I say, this is America. Give them both what they want. You know, personally, I prefer sex, but whatever floats your boat. <laughs> And I, what Scalia did, maybe he did it because he had to get Kennedy's vote, but he gave a very helpful laundry list of uh, regulations and exceptions that would be completely permissible, consistent with the Second Amendment. He analogized it to the First Amendment, in which freedom of speech is not absolute, no more so our, our, our gun rights. And, and so I think that reasonable regulations would be mm-hmm. uh, appropriate. My, I'm an agnostic at this point as to whether uh, the particular challenge regulation is, in fact, uh, justifiable or not. Mm-hmm. Great, great. I know we were getting close to the end. Andy wanted to, to say one thing, and then I'll say maybe also one thing at the end. Well, really, what I wanted to say was thank you, because, uh, you know, sometimes you, uh, you know, I have a lot of, of um, lucky to have a lot of close friends, and, uh, you know, some friends, you get together with them, and you realize that however much time you have, it wouldn't be enough uh, because there's so much to talk about uh, and so forth. And that's that's the feeling that I got from this conversation. So thank you so much for that. Well, thank you so much. But I so wish it could have been more of a conversation where I would hear your thoughts. And I'm so happy about the thoughts you did share, Akil. So now I know that I have you as a, such a respected ally, I can say. You yeah, know, on, not all, on all these all things. Favors, but also Akil Amar. Yeah, yes. on, on Citizens United, on City of Chicago versus McDonald, on, on mm-hmm. free speech generally and the need to um, affirm it against those who want to shut it down left or, or right. You and I are as one on those things. And, and I just wanted to end by, since we began with David Souter, uh, introducing you with his inimitable New Hampshire accent. Um, and that's where we met at this event about the writs of assistance, because he was interested in that. I just can't resist telling you, Andy knows uh. this, that the new book, um, the words that made us America's constitutional conversation, uh, 1760 to 1840, and it's about conversation and discourse and all the things we've been talking about. Chapter one of the book actually begins with the writs of assistance controversy, actually. So um, as, as I wrote that, and, and, and these three Harvard people, James Otis, James, John Adams, and, and Thomas Hutchinson. So as I wrote it, I was flashing back with very fond memories to uh, when you and I met uh, at, at David Souter's uh, prompting to, to start th- to, to think about the American civil liberties tradition, which from a certain point of view began um, in, in Boston in 1761. Oh, that's so moving. I really look forward to reading your book. It'll be out on Tuesday. Congratulations. Thank you once again. Thank you both. I really, really enjoyed it. 